HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese. Learn more at forevercheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and my guest today, I'm super excited about this conversation, is nobody other than Chris Jones, former research engineer at the University of Iowa and author of the newly published Swine Republic, uh, which came out this month from Ice Cube Press, a a regional press uh, in the Iowa area. Um, This book is making some big waves. And as you hear this conversation, you will understand why. Chris is a researcher of water quality. And boy, did he manage to get under the skin of the uh, agricultural overlords lords in his home state of Iowa. So Chris, uh, first give us a little thumbnail of your history as a water quality researcher because you've been in that game for a long time in various different iterations. Sure, thanks Katie. Um, so I worked many years in Minnesota at a contract testing laboratory and then I did consulting work up there for about five years for water and wastewater utilities. Um, Then I accepted a job in 2003 with the Des Moines Water Works, which is a municipal drinking water utility for the Des Moines area. Uh, I went from there and worked at the Iowa Soybean Association, which is uh, a checkoff ag organization uh, that promotes the um, uh, use of soybeans. And they did some environmental work with farmers. And so I worked there for four years. And then the last eight years I've spent at the University of Iowa here as a research engineer, managing the university's network of water quality sensors and then doing a research of my own on contaminant hydrology in agricultural landscapes. Now, didn't you actually set up that whole sensor program, which expanded enormously under your eight-year tenure, right? Well, the sensors have been around for about 20 years now. And when I worked at the Waterworks, um, Hawk Company came, uh, their sales representative came to me and suggested we try out these devices in the treatment plant, which we did. And they worked so well that I thought, geez, there might be an application uh, in rivers for these things. Uh And so with some other folks, 
we got one of these deployed in the Raccoon River near the small town of Van Meter, Iowa, and I think that was in 2006. To my knowledge, that was the first deployment of that sensor in a stream uh, measuring water quality continuously. After that time, uh, some people from the University of Iowa came over and talked to me at the Waterworks, and they were interested in this, mm -hmm. having known that we had done this successfully. And so the, net, the sensor network uh, had its roots here before I came over here, but it was already uh, established at a sort of a small scale. And since I had... Um, been here at the beginning of these sensors in rivers. I was a candidate to come over here and help manage this, which I did. Uh-huh. And so you started writing a blog about what you found as a water quality researcher. And why, why did you feel like you needed to start that blog? When I came over here, they encouraged all the research staff to set up web web pages, which I did. And, and I had done a fair amount of writing in my previous jobs, and I felt like I was an adequate writer. And mm -hmm. so I thought this might be an outlet for that. And so early on, I posted uh, essays targeting general audiences about the data and the first couple of years, really not many people read the pieces. And then I wrote one that was called, This is What Happened, which was um, a history of Iowa agriculture and how it was manifested in our water quality. Uh -huh. That one was read uh, pretty widely. And after that, I thought, well, there was maybe a, a space here for people, for someone like me to write about this topic towards general audiences. And so that I did. And um, from my perspective, um, you know, to write about this in a real sort of genuine way, um, you know, you have to write with just sort of some naked honesty, I would guess. And I think that's, that's what um, drew people to the blog, because I think so much of what we hear about agriculture and the environment is getting filtered through um, the ag media, and then the agencies, uh, which also are sort of reluctant to um, upset or get under the skin, as you would put it, of the ag titans here. And mm -hmm. so I think that was sort of the history of the blog, I guess. And then how long did it take for you to get in trouble? <laughs> because we should explain to people that you actually had to resign your position. T tell us, take us through what just happened to you because this is a crucial part of this story, uh, just so, as a matter of course, aside from the success of your book. so Well, I want to say throughout the entirety of me um, writing the blog until recently, um, the university had been supportive of it. And I was never told to write, to not write something. I uh, never had anything I wrote edited or censored in any way. Mm -hmm. And I did not um, submit pieces for review prior to posting, except on a very few occasions uh -huh. where I thought the piece was, per, you know, perhaps overly provocative. And no one <laughs> above me censored it. No one said anything. And then at the end, um, 
there was a couple guys in the legislature that um, came to the University of Alabama lobbyist and said, look, um, you know, you guys are over here asking for funding for various programs. Um, we really um, don't feel good about that as long as you're letting this guy continue to write uh, these pieces in his blog. And mm -hmm. so the two guys in the legislature both happen to be farmers also. Mm -hmm. And so my boss uh, came to me and said, look, you know, um, this has gotten to be a problem. And, and so I uh, knew this day could come eventually. Right. <laughs> and so it wasn't, wasn't a shock. We agreed that I would write one more piece uh, that would be published on the university domain and then that I would consider taking the blog to an off-campus domain. Right. I wrote the last piece um, and I very gently implied in the last piece that these two legislators had pressured um, the university to take this step and I think I said in there that I, I knew the whole time I was writing these essays, I was like a dog chasing cars <laughs> and even a three-legged dog like me can get too close to the rear, rear wheels once in a while. And I said that happened mm. and they wanted that taken out of there. And um, I was told that I could not say or imply that there, this was happening under pressure from the legislature. And right. to me, that was just too much. And I, I said that, um, you know, this was not really a free speech issue. This was an ethics issue in that I was being told that I could not mention or imply something that objectively happened. And um, at this point, I started thinking, you know, really seriously about whether I wanted to continue working. Mm. And... Um, and so I waited about a week and um, decided to retire. And so that's the story of the end. I really wasn't forced to resign. Uh, you might characterize it as a, I resigned under protest perhaps, but um, I think, you know, the uh, letting people in the legislature dictate what, researchers can say or not say is a pretty dangerous place for a, for an institution of higher learning to be. I, I could not agree with you more. I mean, I, I think it's absolutely appalling, and yet it is absolutely not uncommon. And I remember years ago when I was doing book publicity for a living myself, I'd worked on a book called University Inc. Um, by a young woman named Jennifer Washburn, and it outlined the kinds of deals that are struck um, that uh, very often preclude unfavorable research from being published uh, in the service of donations from XYZ company or corporation. Um, in other words, all kinds of research gets suppressed or pushed to the side uh, when it doesn't meet the donor's um, expectations. So uh, while it is shocking, it is not unusual in any sense. And that book, by the way, came out probably 20 years ago. So I'm sure it's gotten worse. Um, so what? So when you um, when you decided to put the blog together into the Swine Republic, was that was bef long before this all came down for you. Yeah, and in fact, um, 
someone from the University of Iowa Press. And so this is a big writing school. Uh-huh. Okay? And we have the writer's workshop here. Yeah, of course. Very famous. Very, very famous. And, and so the University of Iowa Press, one of their editors came to me a few years ago, it was before COVID, and said, well, would you like to do a book? And I had not had, you know, that objective. It was not a career objective for me, although it certainly is for many faculty people. And I said, well, sure, why not? And so she had me uh, put together a proposal, and I spent you know, a fair amount of time editing the blog sure. posts to get them in book form. And then I never heard anything for a long time. And um, finally, I was forwarded an email saying the director of the University of Iowa Press hated it. <laughs> and uh, and he, um, he, he really... Um, denigrated it from almost every angle uh the content the um wow the writing style everything and what a pretentious jerk (laughs) that's what i thought and so i uh, shame on him i sort of dropped the idea to be honest Mm -hmm. and then that would have discouraged anyone uh, yeah and so then the same editor person came to me maybe a year or two later and said, well, why don't you try uh, this Steve Semkin at Ice Ice Cube Press? And he wanted it. And so I guess the rest is history. Right. So, yeah, I mean, even here at the University of Iowa Press, you know, where we have this um, world-renowned writing school and this publishing house, there's some recalcitrance to uh, say anything bad about agriculture. Which... Well, let's talk about why that is. I mean, your book relates the true story of water quality quality in the state of Iowa, not just in like a lot of my listeners who've been with me a long time know that I covered the Des Moines Water Work lawsuit quite extensively. I had Bill Stowe on probably three, four times. I've had Art Cullen on a bunch of times from Storm Lake Times to talk about water quality and, and the sighting of CAFOs and everything. Talk about what did you find and what, you know, like, why should people like have their hair on fire about this? Because I, personally speaking, I would. I already do and I don't live in Iowa. So, you know, I think we should have our hair on fire um, in regards to the water simply because um, the industry treats us as um, as not deserving of clean water. And so this is something I reject. And we hear all the time that, okay, we're a, we're a farming state and we have to be uh, ready to tolerate some degraded condition of our water and our other natural resources. And I just reject that. Um, and I think we've sort of um, abdicated um, our role as citizens by just letting the industry run roughshod over the natural resources that belong to all of us. And, you know, that's my main issue here. Now, sure, the water, there are health concerns. There's concerns from, you know, an aquatic life perspective and, and habitat and all these other things. Sure. That should make people angry. Uh, without a doubt, but I think the idea that we're just supposed to accept this is something 
as citizens that I thought we should reject. Right. But the other and, thing, the other thing to point out here, Chris, is that um, like so many other uh, polluting industries, um, you know, they're not being forced to pay for the true cost of their external. So, so what's happening is taxpayers are ending up, uh, you know, well, you read a lot about a money loop between taxpayers and, and farming, which we'll talk about in a second, but the taxpayers are on the hook for paying higher water rates because they have to ever improve the water filtration systems in their municipalities. Isn't that true? So you're not only participating in the other money loop, but you're also participating in having to pay to clean up your own water by an entity that is blithely polluting it from upriver uh, counties, such as the suit that was brought in the Des Moines Waterworks. So that's right. We There's all sorts of externalities uh, with the industry that we don't hold them accountable to. Right, right. At but the then, same time, yeah. at the same time, then we have to pay uh, to clean up our water and to mitigate the pollution. And what gets me right. is that as taxpayers, then we're also asked to subsidize the production system and Thank to indemnify you. it with publicly supported uh, crop insurance and other subsidy programs. Uh, taxation, for example, very favorable taxation policy for farmers, um, all sorts of things, uh, driving heavy equipment on roads. Sure. Um, you know, there's just a big laundry list of things, the way the, the public subsidizes this operation. Then we're asked to pay to mitigate the pollution. And I think this policy is perverse. Right. And then yeah. there's also the yeah. fact that there's no, that it's voluntary conservation, that there's no regulations that have been written into the law that force these guys to say, not plant crops right up to the very edge of a river, for example. I mean, you, you went on, there was one or two essays about that, about like, you know, why are we not creating bigger buffer zones? Well, because they might lose one tenth of a percent of their, you know, crop yield because they haven't planted right to the edge of the riverbank. Um, so, yeah, I agree with that, that, um, you know, there should be some rules. And since we subsidize the system, since we pay uh, farmers and the industry to do what they do uh, in terms of government programs, then we ought to have a say in how the system is operated. Mm -hmm. And we being the public, and if that means having our streams buffered uh, from crop production or, you know, banning certain practices that we know to be environmentally degraded. You know, I think that's reasonable, mm -hmm. uh, completely reasonable. I think it's completely reasonable. I know that a lot of farmers probably have their voodoo dolls out and are sticking pins in it furiously because <laughs> you had the nerve to suggest that, you know, they should be paying for this remediation rather than the taxpayer uh, through, as what you described earlier, all the crops insurances and, and uh, you know, the money that you get for putting your land in conservation and all the rest of it. Um, I don't want to spend too much more time on that, but there is a real... Um, there's a there's a you you wrote about the big ag and the and the and the propaganda which I loved um, the propaganda that um, allows this stuff to happen. In other words, what I'm trying to get at here is that the the sort of your elected officials right down to your judiciary seem to have been bought and paid for by the industry, uh, you know, 
concerns that that operate blithely in your state. And and I wanted you to talk a little bit about, um, you know, what what that really is all about. Like the you know your elected officials, your judiciary. Um, be specific on how how that uh, has had an impact on sort of the lack of, of any kind of real regulation to mitigate some of this stuff. So I will say I'm not accusing any individual of being bought and fa- paid for, but to pretend that <laughs> That's agriculture <nice> of you. <laughs> <laughs> to pretend that agriculture doesn't have an outsized influence on our political process here, you know, is crazy. It most certainly does. And and so I think, you know, you know, farming is part of our culture here. And sure. so almost everyone knows somebody that farms or they grew up on a farm or, you know, a relative farm, you know, it's very, very common, especially people of my generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's becoming less so. Um, but nonetheless, um, the culture of agriculture is really part of the fabric here. And so that extends especially into our political processes. And so when we look at our legislature, um, about 25 to 30 percent of our legislature made up, is made up of farmers, uh, but only less than 2 percent of our population is a full-time farmer. Right. So 2 percent are farmers and you know, 30 percent of our legislature is farmers. And so that is an example. And they'll and so our political process is very much controlled by the farmers themselves and then agribusiness. Mm -hmm. And so as the population of farmers has declined over the last 75 years, well, a lot of that, uh, a lot of those people have been absorbed into agribusiness. And so agribusiness is huge now. Um, Sure. I mean, you have Smithfield, you have the big JBS plant. I mean, I'm, I'm on the meat side of things. That's what I know about. Um, but you are the biggest swine producing state in the United States. I mean, talk for a second about what that means in terms of the manure. Cause like, this is why I, I really want people to understand what you're dealing with here. You know, that there's like the untreated sewage of, you know, 135 million animals or so. I forget what the number is, Chris, refresh me on that. But you have very so good have, statistics. At any one time, we have 25 million hogs. And so um, a hog reaches market weight at six months of age. So, you know, we bring 50 million hogs to market every year. Mm-hmm. We have 4 million beef cattle, 5 million turkeys. We have, we're the largest egg producing state. So we have 80 million laying chickens. I think we have about 4 million uh, broiler chickens. Um, we have a fairly sizable dairy uh, industry with 220,000 dairy cattle. And so, you know, all these animals, especially the hogs and the cattle, excrete a lot of waste. And so when I look at the population of all our animals and then look at the literature values for the amount of waste they're excreting, and I convert that to a human equivalent, we've got about 168 million uh, people living here in terms of our fecal waste. Wow. You know, actual human beings that live here is only about 3 million. Right. And so this is a colossal sort of challenge for the state to try to manage this waste. And, you know, 
we have areas of the state, especially where with hogs, where uh, the confinements are very concentrated. And so, you know, it's much like the Chesapeake Bay where you can't find enough land to apply the manure. Mm -hmm. There's just so many animals. As a consequence, where we see high density of livestock here in Iowa is also where we see our worst water quality. And again, there's really not much to um, regulate um, this activity. There are some rules, but they're um, very favorable for the farmer and were largely written by the industry. And as a consequence, you know, we have this environmental degradation from all these animals. Right. And then you have the additional environmental degradation brought along by the the growing of two crops, soy and corn, which Iowa is famous for, and which feeds all of those animals and the ethanol program, which doesn't look like it's going to go away anytime soon. We're going to take a short break for a sponsor drop. Chris, stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back. We have a lot more to cover here. In fact, as I said to Chris, we may need another session. Stay tuned. Forever Cheese, a leading importer of cheese and specialty food, has sourced exceptional products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia for 25 years. Offering a wide selection of artisan cheese, charcuterie, nuts, crackers, preserves, and more, their products are sold in stores nationwide. Forever Cheese seeks out the best of the Mediterranean and focuses on sharing stories from their family of producers— Each product has a unique story, and their goal is to celebrate each one. From Drunken Goat to Genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mostarda to Mitica Marcona Almonds, and Duya to Hamon Iberico, Forever Cheese is proud to offer products they love from people they believe in. Their passion, quality, and range are unmatched. Learn more at forevercheese.com and look for their products in a grocery store, restaurant, or specialty food shop near you. Okay, so we were talking about how much manure there is that is unprocessed, like, a, you know, in a municipal uh, situation that would go through a wastewater treatment process, right? And then all of the solids would be cleaned, blah, blah, blah. This doesn't happen on all of these uh, CAFOs um, and farms. And so this is untreated waste, which is sprayed on fields at particular times of the year um, with very little oversight, correct? And there's something called a manure management plant that ha- plan that has to be filed by anyone who has a lot of livestock, I think it's over 1,000 uh, head of any particular thing. Um, but it's um, I, I, one thing that I wanted to ask you about, because we are going to run out of time because it's just like so much fun to talk about this. Um, what what have you seen? No, wait, first I want to talk a little bit about the myth of the farmer in mm-hmm. Iowa, because, you know, Americans have bought into the myth of the cowboy, lock, stock and barrel, mm-hmm. And that's why we love our guns, among other reasons. Um, but the the myth of the farmer is, I think, just as powerful and even growing in power, um, maybe not quite so much on the East Coast, but still we all, I mean, I'm a member of a conservation district here in Southern Rhode Island, and we are positively reverential about our farmers. But of course, mm-hmm. they are not, they're not producing 50 million hogs a year, right? If they right. were, I don't think we'd feel that way. Um, right. <laughs> But in Iowa, I mean, and in a lot of the Midwestern states, there is a real kind of um, reverence 
uh, toward this idea that we're feeding the world, which is also propaganda that is set out by the meat industry, you know, to excuse all of their excesses. Mm-hmm. Can you can you describe that how that myth sort of came into being in Iowa and how it really does control sort of the trajectory of the state? So yes, we like to think of the farmer as this sort of rugged agrarian, right? That's scratching out a living against all odds. Um, with weather, um, of course, being a big factor and having little control over the overall economy and the demand for um, the products that are produced on the farm. And, you know, we really don't have that anymore. Um, And so we're down to about 80,000 farmers here in Iowa, about half of them are full time. And what we do here is we grow uh, corn for ethanol, and then we produce Uh, meat protein for the world's wealthy people. And so the idea that we're feeding the world here is just a myth. And, you know, the truth is, um, you know, a lot of these farmers, not all of them, but a lot of them are pretty wealthy people. And so when we look at the average income of an Iowa farmer, it's about $134,000 a year. Right. Well, the average income of a of an Iowan is about forty seven thousand dollars a year. Wow! And so, uh, when we look at their wealth, of course, farmers, you know, oftentimes have a lot of accumulated wealth too in terms of their land, especially, but um, other capital assets as well. And so, the idea that um, the Iowa farmer is this rugged agrarian that's just squeaking by is just not accurate. Right. The other thing, too, um, in a corn soybean system, you know, the dirty little secret here and farmers joke about this amongst themselves. It's really not that hard just to grow corn and soybeans uh, if you don't have livestock. And, you know, you hear farmers say, well, my rotation is corn, beans in Miami. And, <laughs> That's pretty funny, so, Chris. <laughs> so they, well, it's true. And so, you know. Corn and soybeans, it's two weeks planting, two weeks spraying, two weeks harvesting, and then go to Florida or to Scottsdale. (laughs) And which is fine. I mean, if if all of us, you know, if many of us were presented with the same situation, we would do the same thing. And, um, but, you know, I don't see where the public should subsidize this activity, nor should we have to pay to mitigate the pollution. And, you know, I say all the time, I do a lot of presentations. I say all the time, the problem isn't that farmers are evil. The problem is that they're human beings and they're making the same decisions that many of us would make under under similar circumstances. And that's why we need policy. We need more effective policy to get the environmental outcomes Mm -hmm. that we want. Well, you have five proposals for improving water quality, and I want you to run through what those are. So I do have my five, and I, I say all the time. I like your five. I like and I just say, we need laws, right? right. Uh, people say, well, what can we done be done? And I say, well, the first thing we need is laws. And so there's common sense things we could do now that would produce better water quality now. Would they completely solve the problem? No, I don't assert that but i think you know if if we're gonna pay money to farmers 
to try to get better environmental outcomes in. We ought to expect some common sense rules too. And so my first one is fall tillage. And so we only have about uh, 20% of our land here in Iowa is no-till. And um, so most of the farmers are conducting tillage of some sort. And when they till in the fall, that leaves that soil very vulnerable to erosion, mm -hmm. you know, until the next year when the corn has formed a canopy, which is, you know, June. And so we have wind erosion here in Iowa. This past winter was the worst wind erosion I'd ever seen. No kidding. Why do we allow this to happen? Um, the ag uh, universities have been putting out guidance on fall tillage since the 80s. The 80s, they all say one thing, that is don't do it. And so why do we allow this? Um, we need to ban manure on snow and frozen ground. And so when we know, uh, we know when the snow melts, you know, that manure gone, right, to the stream network. Right, it goes right down to the stream, right? We do have some rules, but they're, you know, riddled with loopholes. And when this is worse is in the month of March. And so after February 28th, they can apply uh, um, manure to snow and frozen ground. Well, I mean, that's when it's most likely to run off into the streams. And so why do we allow that? Right. We have over 400,000 acres uh, in the two-year floodplain here in Iowa that are cropped corn and soybean. And so every other year, on average, all the inputs to that land gone to the Gulf of Mexico because it's flooded every other year. And, and so why do we allow this? Uh, you know, and along those lines, we don't require stream buffers. And so farmers farm right up to the, the stream edge, to the brink of the stream. Right. You know, if we cannot protect our riparian corridors, there truly is no hope. This is just conservation 101. Yeah. Is to protect the riparian corridor. Absolutely. Uh, the fourth one is Iowa State University. Uh, has their what they call their end rate calculator. This is a recommended amount of nitrogen uh, applied to corn here. Uh, nitrogen pollution in our streams is our worst problem. We know that statewide farmers are probably 30 to 40 pounds above um, that recommended amount per acre. Um, you know, let's make farmers adhere to these ISU recommendations. Uh, we should be able to do that. Then my last um, point is we need to redo the master matrix uh, livestock siting uh, law here in Iowa. Right. Um, that's been in place for about 20 years. This is a classic race to the bottom type situation where we made our laws as lax as possible to try to attract the industry. Our counties have no um, authority to really to restrict the the siting of these facilities. Wow. They're not allowed to zone um, um, in a very effective way. And as a consequence, uh, it's very easy to get a construction permit for a new CAFO. And because of that, you know, our hog population has doubled over the last 25 years. Oh, we yeah. have about 8,000 CAFOs in Iowa now that required a construction permit. And so we really need, if, if, if the livestock industry is going to operate here in an environmentally um, responsible way. We really need to redo the master matrix um, laws that we have.
And do you see, like, since the since the uh, Vilsack 2.0 has happened, um, are you seeing the Biden administration making any kind of noise about getting involved in any of these issues? No, or? not at all. And so um, Michael Regan, the EPA head, actually came here to Iowa a couple years ago and and said publicly, you know, we're not going to regulate agriculture. We're not going to do that. And oh my God. Tom Vilsack, who um, you probably know, was governor of Iowa, sure. turned governor of Iowa, Democrat, now the secretary of agriculture for the second time. Right. He has mocked, uh, openly mocked the uh, farm to fork uh, program they have in the EU to address climate change, uh, greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. He said, you know, no, we're not going to do that here. We're not doing that in the U.S. We're not wow. going to regulate agriculture. And so I see Vilsack as very much just establishment agriculture and not um, really, uh, I, I don't see that Vilsack has prioritized environmental outcomes from agriculture. That's my take. Right, right. And we could talk about the carbon capture pipeline that he's ramming down the throats of Iowans, yeah. but I'm not sure we have time for that. I, there are a couple other things I want to talk about before we end this, and then maybe you'll come back another time to sort of speak more globally. But I, I wanted to ask you, like, you know, you you worked in uh, Minnesota for a while. Um, you live in the Midwest. Like, what? how are other big agricultural states like Minnesota, Illinois, Kentucky, Indiana, like how are they managing their agricultural, uh, for lack of a better word, inputs, you know, in the form of nitrates, phosphorus and and uh, animal waste? Like, do they have stricter rules than Iowa or is it everybody doing the same thing? So we should say there are problems in other states. And, mm -hmm. yeah, and we see that elsewhere. Um, especially Western Lake Erie Basin, we hear about a lot. Um, as far as the Corn Belt states, uh, Minnesota has attempted um, more of a regulatory approach, especially uh, when it comes to um, nitrate and groundwater. Mm -hmm. And so there are rules in Minnesota for farmers um, that have to, uh, the, the, the rules restrict uh, nitrogen application rates. It requires farmers to undergo uh, various training um, in terms of nitrogen application if the groundwater in their area is contaminated. Mm. Furthermore, Minnesota has a 50-foot uh, buffer. Um, all their perennial streams, it's required that they be buffered uh, 50 feet on each side, um, mm -hmm. so no crops can be grown there. So it's common sense things, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing we see in other states um, around us that's sort of different is that so much or such a high percentage of our land is farmed. And so, you know, that's what really separates Iowa is that we really have none of the natural environment left here. I mean, if it can be farmed, it is farmed. And so when you have some natural areas, when you retain some natural areas, that tends to buffer the effects of farming. And we just don't have that in Iowa. And, right. Good point. And so, you know, in, the, in terms of the regulation, you know, the, the more intense your production system is, the more you need regulation. 
And yeah. so I always make this sort of analogy. If you live in a tiny town of 100 people, well, how many rules and regulations do you need to make it work? Not many. But if you live in Chicago, you know, you need a lot of rules and regulations to keep things running smoothly. And so, you know, if one person doesn't get their car off the street after a snowstorm, you know, it's a it's a disaster. Right? Sure. Right. And so the same holds true with agriculture. Do we really need to regulate a 10 acre cornfield in western Kentucky? Well, probably not. But in terms of Iowa, where we have virtually everything farmed, if we're going to get the environmental outcomes that we want, we need some rules. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're going to have to wrap it up in a couple of minutes, but I, I would be uh, unfair to you and to the Swine Republic if I did not point out to people that this book is studded with witty sayings. I, 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 it wasn't until I sort of got to the end of the book that I thought, Jesus, I really want to tell people about some of these things. I mean, the propaganda, for example, was a great, I mean, like that was a new one for me. And he, and he described it as the Joseph Goebbels School of Journalism. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I'm telling you, people, I was like, our politicians swoon like teenage girls when those barnyard beetles take the stage. This is referring, of course, to like the farmers who are, you know, acting like they have, you know, mud caked on their boots when actually they're wearing their, you know, Loro Piano suits to their board meetings. But, you know, whatever. Um, there was another, oh, soil health consulting firms, so many of which seem to be sprouting like pigweed in a soybean field with a roundup hangover. Over. I mean, Chris, this is gold. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, nobody could resist witticisms of this type. I mean, even the staunchest ally of Monsanto, John Deere, and Smithfield would be hard-pressed not to crack a smile at some of the witticisms that you came up with in this book. Um, I want you to give you a moment to promote the book. Um, do you have events coming up? Is there a website that people can learn more? Um, I know on your uh, University of Iowa webpage, which has not yet been removed, um, people can still tune into your uh, podcasts, one of which is with my best buddy there, Tom Philpot. I absolutely adore Tom Philpot. We were yodeling your praises two weeks ago because he was on the show. <laughs> well, he, he wrote the foreword for my book and yeah. it is beautifully written. Uh, he's a good I writer. I say that. Yeah. Very beautifully written. Yep. Um, so the book, I do have an event in Des Moines this Saturday. It's at Ray Gun. I don't know if your listeners have heard of Ray Gun, but they make t-shirts and they're very famous in Iowa uh -huh. for Great. sort of make putting witty sayings on t-shirts. And so I'm having a, an event at their store on Saturday. Um, I'm having an event tonight uh, in Cedar Rapids. Um, cool. And so, I, yeah, I mean, the book, look, I wanted the haters to read it. I wanted the haters to read the essays. And as you say, uh, my hope was that, um, you know, some humor spr sprinkled here and there would entice them to uh, read, the, read the essays and maybe think there was some uh, merit to the composition, right, mm -hmm. if, if they hated the content. And oh, they'll hate so the that, content. Oh my god, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I yeah. said, if they're not sticking pins in their voodoo doll of Chris Jones, I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well. yeah, baby, 
your head is probably shrinking without you even knowing it as they mumble their incantatory curses. <laughs> well, I wonder if they're the ones making my uh, belly get larger. Than <laughs> That's all the nitrates you're eating in that yeah, water maybe, you're drinking. Maybe. Anyway, the, thank you so much, Chris. The book, again, for people is The Swine Republic Ice Cube Press. The author, Chris Jones, uh, has an incredible presence in this book. And um, I hope that people can access, you know, your podcasts and, and that you'll be continuing to do this really important work. I mean, we didn't get to why the Iowans are so complacent, but that'll be for the next show. Um, okay. Very good. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to write another book. So Good. That's great. Yeah. I look forward to it. And I'll be keeping up with what you're doing. And maybe you'll come back in a few weeks and we'll talk some more about some of the bigger issues that this represents just in terms of how we pursue uh, food production in this country. Because what we're doing now, it's not going to work for us for the long term, people. Right. <laughs> anyway, Very thank good. you so much, Chris. You, I really Katie. appreciate your time. Thanks, as always, to my sponsors. And we'll see you next week, folks. Appreciate you tuning in today. Bye bye for now. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.